Hello, my name is Rosemary Milsom and I'm the director of the Newcastle Writers Festival. Fight Like a Girl was recorded in 2017. In this forthright conversation with Ruby Hammond, Clementine Ford exposes how unequal the world continues to be for women. Julie Bishop doesn't. And it's not because Julie Bishop is not supported and aided by feminism. Um, and Malcolm Turnbull certainly does nothing to support the cause of feminism. Um, but so, so people say, you know, like, you need to be nicer to men. And what they don't realise is that because it, maybe it doesn't even occur to them that actually men are not part of this conversation or don't need to be at the forefront of this conversation is that what I write and the conversations that I want to have, men are free to read and free to listen to and free to learn from, but they're primarily had with women because I want women to understand that they don't need anyone to give them anything, that they are entitled to rise up and take those things for themselves. They're entitled to be the witnesses to their own lives and they're entitled to believe that their stories are worth telling. And they're also entitled to do what I do, which is stand there and say to men, I don't care whether or not you like it. I don't care whether or not you support it. I don't care whether or not you agree with it or if you think that I should be nicer. You having all of those feelings does not change the way that I will choose to go out and operate my movement. Um, and you know, it's like this guy stood up yesterday in the last night in the panel that we did, and he'd, he'd come along. I'm so, you know, if you're here, maybe you can hear it twice. Um, <laughs> he said that, you know, he stood up and he said that as a white male who was over, you know, just over middle age now, and he had he had sons, and they were all good men. They all supported the ladies, supported equality, and you know, they were very they they were very supportive of women. But he just felt like maybe all of us four women on stage were just being a bit biased. And we just needed to recognise that, you know, not all men, etc., etc. Um, and I, you know, I said to him that um, he didn't like this response very much. But I said, you know, you need to sort of look at why you're being so defensive about this, and and you need to kind of question what what the discomfort is that you're feeling about being challenged on your role here. And you know, Rhonda said to him that this status quo and structural power doesn't care whether or not you're a good guy because the you know you, individuals don't need to be good for the structure to continue on existing and most people who need to most people who are adamant that you need to know that they're either a good guy if a good guy if a guy stands there and he needs a woman to understand that he's a good guy it's every bit as untrustworthy as if i sit there and i need to convince ruby that i'm a good white person in the face of what she's telling me about the racism that she experiences. Yeah, but Ruby, I'm a good white person. Why are you directing that, that topic to me? Why don't you go and tell all those bad white people out there about it? I'm a, why won't you recognise that I'm a good white person? That there are good white people out there, actually. Why won't you recognise them, Ruby? Why don't you talk... Well, in fact, why is there not a white person on the panel? Because I'm, <laughs> I'm really sorry, but I didn't realise your... Um... Your feelings are obviously more important than my safety, so I'm sorry. Well, but I'm not personally. <laughs> yeah, Why are you making me feel bad? Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to throw to the audience in, in, a, in a few minutes, in a, a couple of minutes. So if anyone thinks they want to ask a question, uh, start formulating. Um, but I do want to, on that note, I want to talk about anger, right? Because anger can be quite, I th like... Uh, misunderstood, um, you know, you talk about it in your book and that it's okay for women to be angry. 
Uh, it's often like it's minimized or it's, it's uh, dismissed as being irrational. Um, when is anger a good thing? Because I think that I get angry and sometimes I feel ashamed for it. But then I think, well, no, I'm angry because of feeling as, you know, because of all my different intersecting identities, feeling minimized and feeling invalidated and not listened to. And, and sometimes, and if I feel, get emotional over that, I feel that is completely justified. And sometimes I get talked down to in a very calm way, but uh, I still think that our society often mistakes calmness for rationality and logic, or it, it substitutes it. I don't think that the question should be, when is anger a good thing? I think the question should be, why is women's anger in particular pathologized so poorly? Why is women's anger used against them? And it's used against us because, firstly, there, you know, the, the whole last chapter of my book is called It's Okay to Be Angry. And it's basically like 6,000 words of all the things that we're allowed to be angry about and that we should be angry about. You know, women have said, oh, well, you're just so angry. Well, why the fuck aren't you angry about the fact that one in three women will experience domestic violence? Why aren't you angry about the fact that one in five girls over the age of 15 will experience sexual violence? Why aren't you angry about the fact that when she reports that sexual violence, she's less than 5% likely to see any judicial kind of um, punishment for it? You know, it's something like 1% of cases that are reported to the police in Victoria of sexual violence, and that's if the ones reported, will even go to the courtroom. Um, why aren't you angry about the fact that girls graduate from university at greater levels than men, but are less likely to get management positions? And I should say, I don't really care about getting women on boards. It's not my, it's not my goal. It's, I just feel like it's <sighs> trickle-down yeah. equalities. So... It's just won't. It's just stupid. But have you seen how even that has become part of the backlash? That uh, even though women, uh, it, we might be, you know, make up more university places and graduates, and we're still not getting the jobs that, that men are getting. And yet, you'll we'll still see all these columns about how feminism has gone too far because now these poor boys are not in university. And and so the feminisation yeah. of men must stop. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Someone so, wrote a letter to the newspaper the other day. I read the Herald Sun every day to read the, the letters. It's my, like, act of rage in the morning. <laughs> and Dan wrote a letter about... This was about the, oh, the fairy tales thing. And he said, um, he said, how do we know that gender inequality leads to domestic violence? Have we got proof? The feminisation of men must stop. And I was like, okay, well, that's what I am angry about that letter, you know, and I should be angry about that letter. I'm angry about the fact that I spoke to a, a young woman last night who is in the process of leaving the army before her time is up because the experience that she's had there has been so horrific and traumatizing as a woman that she has to leave, except that she's not being allowed to leave on her terms. She was first told that she couldn't leave at all. And then she was told that she can leave, but she won't be allowed to go into the reserves as she wanted. Um, and if she chooses not to accept that deal, then they'll make her leave anyway, but they'll say that it's on psychological grounds. So you talk about like, oh, well, women, you, you have these people that say, well, women have every opportunity in this country that men do. So where's the inequality? Where, how can you point to it? And you're like, this is what makes it so hard, is that it's no longer a case of being able to look at the legislature and say, well, 
the legislature states that it is legal for a man to rape his wife in marriage. So let's change that. Okay, so that law's changed. So now we've got equality. Now men never rape their wives while they're married to them. Um, or, well, women can have the same jobs as men. Well, but what structures are in place in there? What codes of masculinity are being so strongly enforced that actually make those workplaces hostile to women? And then when those women leave those workplaces because of the trauma that they've experienced, they're told, oh, well, you just couldn't handle it. You know, you just couldn't handle it. Men go to work and they don't, they don't worry about all the things that you, that you worry about. Or the, you know, they've got thicker skins than you and women who experience sexual harassment in the workplace. Well, you, she just couldn't handle working in that environment. How many men could handle working in an environment if they had to go to the workplace every day and they were bullied and then when they complained about it, they were told, oh, well, you just can't handle working here. You know, that would be a national out, outcry about that. Um, so the, I think that one of the problems is that, you know, people who think that feminism and feminism is no longer needed and that gender inequality is a myth, they point to very rigid examples of why. So they say that, well, people who work at McDonald's are on the same award, weight, award rate, so there's no such thing as a wage gap. Because they think that what it literally means is that there is one table of pay for men and one table of pay for women that's actually written down somewhere and filed legally and that that's being enforced illegally. But because that's not happening, they say that it doesn't exist and they don't take into account all of the... What I really love is are the 16-year-old boys <laughs> who respond to like actual researched data that's been produced by economists with years of experience in the field and say, well, the wage gap doesn't exist because Christina Hoff Summers wrote an article in Time about it. <laughs> oh, okay, so legal rights really are only half the battle. Um, and I just think not that we've even, got so but, many things that we're allowed yeah. to be angry about and that we should be angry about and that we have been told that we're not allowed to be angry, that anger in a woman is unattractive, that anger, angry, angriness makes us shrill, it makes us squawk, it makes us bit of... Men don't like angry women. Stop yeah. being so angry. And then we try and do that thing that, on the other side, is that we try and be the carer. So we yeah. try and kind of, like, soften our anger a little bit. We try and pat someone through the anger as we're, as we're saying, well, this is... But can I just tell you why I'm angry about... Oh, oh, don't worry, it won't be very harsh. I'll make sure that I stroke your hair while I'm doing it. You know, instead of just saying, I'm fucking angry, and you can either listen or you can get out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> question? Who's got a question? I can't believe we're, like, really getting close to wrapping up time. Any hands up? I'm sure you've... Yes, Sophia. I don't think... Oh, she's got a mic here. Oh, do you want to come up and... Do you want to make your way up? So while she's making her way up, I just want to know, like, in this... This thing about, like, this um, stigma about anger is... I think applies to any group that has been traditionally uh, marginalised and uh, um, oppressed. Uh, there's a reason in his eight years as president that Barack Obama never got visibly... Um, angry. There was maybe a couple of times when he got quite, you know, passionate, but if he had acted or if he'd lashed out in the way that Trump does, never. 
So I think there's a really something to keep in mind there about who is allowed to get angry and why. Look at, sorry, just quickly, look at Colin Kaepernick, who's the quarter, who was the quarterback. Um, of, he didn't even get angry. Well, no, no. So, so he was a quarterback in America. He was, he's biracial and he um, took a knee during the national anthem in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. And he has, since then, he was a star quarterback since then, he's been hounded out of the game. He is universally panned. He's treated like a traitor. Um, he's treated like an uppity black man who isn't showing proper respect to the flag, etc. And this woman wrote this amazing piece the other day where she basically like outlined, in the NFL, you can have beaten your wife and still play. You can have a sexual assault allegation against you and still play. You can have... Um, this, 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 and this, and still play. In the NFL, you cannot take a knee during the national anthem in silent protest and support for the Black Lives Matter movement, and you cannot be gay. And those are the two things that it's just, it's just crossing a line. And so on your point, yes, people respond to the Black Lives Matter protesters, for example, saying things like, well, they, you know, they're just too angry. They need, to be, they need to be more polite in their protest. And then so someone very politely and silently and powerfully takes a knee during an anthem, just one simple act. And that, that is not enough either. So what they, it's, a, it's, an, it's another tool of oppression. Yeah, that's it. It's, it's, that's exactly right. Um, yes. We could go on about this longer, but yes. <laughs> Thanks both. It's been great. Um, Clementine, I'm just about to finish your book, and I have a six-year-old boy, and he keeps asking me, what's the book about? And I really struggle to... I mean, maybe I'm being a bit idealistic, but I sort of almost don't want to tell him about the inequalities that exist because I don't want to put that in his head and for him to think that that's the society that is at the moment the norm... But at the same time, I want him to realise that he has a role to play in, in helping to, to change that. And I'm just wondering whether you have any suggestions of how I can explain what the book's about in a sort of six-year-old friendly way. <laughs> um, oh, it's really hard. I have... My baby is, a, you know, ostensibly a boy and until I find out otherwise. Um, <laughs> If, they, if that continues to be the case, then it's scary. I'm really scared about what that means raising someone who is, whose experience of power will be different to mine and whose experience of being instructed that that power has not been given but earned mm. is also different. Um, I think it's really funny not ha-ha funny, interesting funny, that people say, oh, I'm really scared of having a girl in this world because of the way that the girl, or the way that girls can be harmed by the world, you know, all the things that can happen to girls. And no one ever says I'm really scared of having a boy because of the way that this world can teach boys how to treat other people. I'm really scared that my son might rape someone one day. You know, that is a legitimate fear that people should have because rapists are somebody's son. And they're most likely going to be someone's community member, someone's colleague, someone's friend. Um, and they're not... You know, when, when people refuse to talk about the reality of that and they keep consigning 
the perpetrators of sexual or physical violence or just gendered violence to the fringes of society as if these people just kind of skulk through the shadows and then leap out of the walls like they come from a different dimension or something, then we never actually get to the root of the problem, which is entitlement. You know, how is it that a private schoolboy from uh, Cranbrook, is that the school's name, mm. can allegedly mm. rape a girl on film, a 15-year-old boy, and that can be filmed and then watched by 50 of his school peers, and this just be something that people think is acceptable to do. You know, that terrifies me that 15-year-old boys are doing that. And it terrifies me that they live in a world in which because they come from class and privilege and background, everything will be done to minimise that behaviour and that the boys themselves, oh, it's just a little mistake. You know, boys... It's like boys are given the entitlement of making the mistake of sexually assaulting a woman and learning from the experience. But the mistakes that women are allowed to make, well, they're never allowed to make any mistakes. You know, I'm sort of deviating slightly from what you say, but but in terms of reproductive health care for, for the women who can get pregnant and don't want to be, but, and they want to have an abortion, but people say, well, you're just a slut who should have kept your legs closed. You know, we're responsible for everything that get, goes into our body, but we're never allowed to be the one in charge of what comes out of our body. Everyone else gets to be in charge of that. Um, so I think that the challenge for me with raising my son is, I guess... I don't know, I'm not an expert, but, you know, constantly trying to teach the humanity of girls as well, but also teach him about his own body, bodily autonomy and try and really break down all of that toxicity of masculinity that will be foisted on him at a certain point, you know, where the kindness and sweetness and innocence of little boys is stamped out in similar by similar tools self-belief and self-like, self-liking and faith in girls is also stamped out. So I guess it's just kind of like trying to muddle through that. Um, but it does sort of surprise me. Maybe what you can do is, is talk to him how it's, a book, how it's about a book about you and a book about your experience and a book about how you want to be treated with respect and kindness and you want to be... You know, like sometimes when he doesn't want to cuddle you, you don't give him the cuddle because it's respecting his body. How you want that same kind of respect? And I don't, I don't know. I mean, yeah, no, I like that. Make it about me, so he can make it about the, his understanding of the world. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Thanks. Hi, Clementine. This is a question about globalization. Um, before I, I ask the question, I just wanted to let people know that um, in Islington there's a space that's just been open called the Women's Room, opposite suspension. It's just for women. So I think that's really revolutionary um, in this time to have... Where's the men's room? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Sexist. <laughs> and you can look that up on Facebook, um, also through the group or AWE. But the question is, do you think globalisation has reinforced gender roles or has it made it, has it, made it better? I feel ill-equipped to answer that question because I'm not a geopolitical expert. <laughs> um, I, well, g- give me an example. Um, so, through the movement of people and resources through the world, has that had an impact um, 
on women in other in in various countries, including developing countries. I or has it reinforced it more because, um, for example, in America? It seems the evangelical movement has made things worse mm. for reproductive rights mm. um, and that, how that impacts as well. I think that we kind of currently operate under the myth that um, well <laughs> I think in some ways the, the ability for feminists in particular to globally reach out to each other has been very powerful um, to be able to kind of become a more magnified force that can no longer be swept aside by powerful media entities that have the power of being able to, to represent the picture and so have always traditionally represented it as being much smaller than it is, can no longer do that because there's actually, we can sort of bypass that. But at the same time, I think that what, as you said, what is often forgotten is this, I mean, I guess this is maybe more of a question of capitalism. Of, for both of you. I think Ruby's probably better yeah. at answering this than me. She's done yeah. more work. But um, I think that, the, you know, capitalism is a bigger issue there as well, is that the, who is producing the labour? And I have a big problem with the notion of choice feminism because, firstly, like, not every choice that we make is the right choice and women being able to make a choice under a an already equal un, uh, in an already unequal society doesn't necessarily mean that that choice is feminist it just means that it's a decision within that structure but you know the choices that we make to wear certain clothing and say well you know don't you shame me for wearing this clothing fine but doesn't take into account who's made the clothing you know it doesn't take into the, into account all of the women whose labor is required to make sure that we have our lovely comfortable middle class feminist lifestyles um, and i don't think that women solely should be responsible for that although we're often will often be expected to be responsible for it but you know it's a good point that you make about the the global gag rule that has been instituted once again in Amer in america and has has been by all republican presidents since reagan um, that now developing countries that rely on aid from multiple sources will no longer be able to get US aid if partial uh, distribution of other funding streams, not American funding streams, but other funding streams goes towards accessing abortion. That has a hugely detrimental effect on, on people around the world. It's worth noting here that uh American evangelical groups uh, have been also been instrumental in implementing anti-gay laws um, in places like Russia and I think Uganda may have been overturned. Um, so that is very, I think, in answer to your question, yes. Uh, Western capitalism, Western religion, Western uh, military and foreign policy have all combined um, to perpetuate and entrench gender and cultural and religious oppression in the global south. Um, so yes, uh, and we should move and on to the next question. Yeah, and, I, and I just wanted to note as well that I realise that when you write a book that's called Fight Like a Girl, that it's, it's I, do, I, don't want it, I don't want to assume that I can speak for a universal experience of girlhood in all of its manifestations. I obviously can't. I can only speak to my experience. But I think that there are some things that are universal to all girls that hopefully the book touches on but of course like it, it is written from a very western perspective and a very west in a, and in a very western context but one of the stakes, mistakes that maybe we can make and certainly other people will accuse us of is that if we 
if our feminism fails to solve all of the problems of the world, then it's useless feminism. And therefore, that we, we don't even have a right to kind of exhibit any of it. I think that you need to be aware of um, how your feminism can always be more intersectional and more in, in recognition of other people's experiences. But you can only do so much as an individual as well. Mm. Absolutely. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for that question. Um, I think we've got one final question and then we'll um, have to wrap it up. Thank you. Um, as a bitter, cynical, angry feminist, what advice do you have to help get my voice heard and not dismissed and make greater social change? Um, I love that you define yourself that way. I think that that's a good first step because it means that you're not afraid <laughs> of being called those things. Um, I think that you... A really good place for people to start is, within, is in within their immediate communities. You know, speak up more to the family members who maybe you previously had felt like you didn't want to have that conversation or that argument. Speak out to your colleagues, to your friends. Um, use your voice and become the person that... Don't, ever, don't let yourself leave a social situation where you go home and you feel exhausted and a bit spent and you feel like you want to cry because you sat there while you while you were kind of like diminished further and further and you didn't let yourself speak up. Um, at the same time, like if people in your immediate circles continue to, to disrespect that this is your experience of the world and continue to tell you that you're wrong, if you can, get rid of them. You don't need to keep certain people in your life. I understand it's not always easy with family members. I certainly have family members of my own where, where these conversations are difficult to have. Um, but at the same time, something I say to, to girls and women a lot is that in engaging with people about your beliefs, you are not under any obligation to convince them of them for those beliefs to remain true. You know, you, don't, you can have a conversation that is respectful with them where you say, well, this is what I believe, this is my experience, um, this is what I accept about the state of the world, because believing... There's a difference between saying, well, I believe that gender inequality exists and just saying, I accept that gender inequality is the state that we live under. Because to say that you believe it implies that, it's, that there is an equal and opposite belief that may be true, and there's not. We do live in a state of gender inequality. That's a fact. Um, you also don't need to be earnest to someone who is trying to ridicule you. You know, I see people engaging in conversations online where someone's quite clearly come in with a with an intent to troll and ridicule and mock and people are giving them earnest energy back and that energy loss will just deplete you because that person doesn't care about your point of view they don't care about your experience mostly they care about the fact that they've riled you up and they'll look at the angry feminist look at her she's losing her mind oh it's so fun trolling angry women on the internet um, and they love the feeling that you'll go away and you'll feel shitty about yourself because you were forced to defend your experience of the world once again. So in those cases, I always say, well, laugh at them. Like, laughter is a much better tool against people who are not there to have a meaningful conversation with you. And they hate it. And you'll end up actually taking their energy from them, which is quite useful in the fight ahead. Um, but more practically, like, I don't know if you... I can only speak from a writing perspective. You, there's plenty of outlets that you can use to write arguments and write articles and get your voice heard that um, certainly weren't around when I was 
starting out. So use them, you know. You don't, you don't even need them to be published by major places. If you want something to be said, you can write it and publish it yourself. Thank you. Well, that's a, thank you. <laughs> good, note, um, good note to finish on. Uh, so thank you so much for coming. Thanks uh, again, Clem. It's been an absolute honour. Um, please, thanks once again. Come forward. Thank you, Ruby. Thank you all for coming as well. And thanks to the Newcastle Writers' Festival. I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation from the 2017 Newcastle Writers' Festival. We hope you can join us this year from Friday, April the 6th to the 8th. We have 130 of Australia's best writers coming to town ready to share their ideas and insights. For more information, please visit newcastlewritersfestival.org.au.